Welcome to episode 160 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And joining us today, uh, just for the news roundup, is Julian Sanchez, who's a, now a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and founding editor of the policy uh, and national security blog, uh, Just Security. Welcome, Julian. Thanks. Uh, and also Gus Hurwitz, uh, uh, Assistant Professor of Law and Director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Law uh, Program at Nebraska, uh, and Stephanie Roy, who's a partner in a Steptoe's communications practice. Uh, welcome, Stephanie. Hi again, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and holding the record for returning to Stepto to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to get right into it. Uh, uh, Shadow Brokers uh, uh, has upped their uh, pace of dumping uh Data on the uh, the world. They did two dumps, so one at the beginning of last week and one at the end. But it looks as though only the one at the end actually matters. It was a uh, uh, a dump that got a lot of attention uh, on Friday and Saturday, and by Sunday people were saying, "Oh, maybe there's not that much here." Uh, uh, the initial indications were a whole bunch of uh, Microsoft zero days had been outed, uh, and then. Um, when uh, uh, Microsoft was heard from, it turned out uh, that all of the current versions of Microsoft uh, uh, products had been patched against these zero days, maybe only a, a month or two ahead of uh, uh, the uh, uh, the disclosure, but uh, uh, in enough time to uh, prevent somebody from uh, uh, taking massive advantage over the weekend of the uh, of the zero days. Uh, so, Julian, anything surprising in this latest uh, dump from Shadow Brokers, apart from their, uh, cont- uh, you know, there ought to be a there ought to be a little engine that will. Translate everything you say not into Vulcan, but into uh, uh, <laughs> shadow broker speak. You know, it's, uh, uh, is is sorry we is not here. Uh, uh, maybe we come back next week uh, with new stuff. Yeah, I mean, it just—it almost seems like uh, too aggressively trying to sort of feign mm-hmm. um, uh, amateurish uh, foreignness. But uh, you know, I mean, I think I would almost assume the causality here goes in in the direction of the the the, the dump now is explained by the fact that the oh, patch recently saw occurred. The patch that right. could be. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is stuff that that indeed, if it hadn't been patched, would be extraordinarily valuable. Right. Uh, a lot of, I mean, a whole framework for exploiting Windows uh, involving unpatched vulnerabilities. That's not the sort of thing you give away for fun, even right. if it would embarrass uh, the NSA. You see that finally uh, they've gotten around to notifying Microsoft, presumably, or it seems someone has gotten around to notifying Microsoft, realizing that the stuff is in the wild. That it's it's uh, that's what um, it looks like. It looks as right, though they, they the, uh, uh, the government did the responsible thing of saying, uh, well, it looks to us as though this is coming and coming soon. We ought to uh, take action to uh, patch it. Right and so away. once it's no longer useful for their own purposes, to say, okay, well, now it's useful only as something to sort of embarrass. Well, that's that, the, 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 the good news then is we're not going to have to listen to whining about the VEP process endlessly from the... Uh, well, you know, look, look, I'll take a second to whine, though. Um, <laughs> I, I, look, I, I do think that absolutely... I'm, I'm not, you know, in the camp.
camp of absolutely everything needs to be disclosed instantly. Um, I understand the, you know, the case for preserving some stuff for a limited amount of time for use for intelligence exploitation. But the absolute bare minimum for that has to be um, that they're, in fact, able to secure their own tools. Yes. Um, and, you know, so I'm glad that they then went forward to, uh, to the Microsoft, it seems, and were notifying about some of these, these exploits. But, um, you know, the first of the Shadow Brokers dumps was back in August, I oh, think. forever ago. Um, so, right, we're talking about nearly, nearly a year ago now, and... Well, and these are very peculiar dumps. There was a dump of some sensitive stuff, yep. and then the, that long dance with the seven veils. Oh, right. we have that, we, are, we are having this uh, encrypted, and now we want a, uh, an auction, and then we're so sorry, you won't auction for it, so we take it back, and then they release it. Right. Uh, and um, and then what comes out is just you know 10-year-old crap. Right. I mean, so that was just some sort of strange kabuki. But still, it seems like we had reason to know this stuff was was in the wild nearly a year ago. Um, uh, so it's a little concerning that it is only very recently that some of this stuff has been patched. And more generally, I think, you know, requires a reevaluation of uh, of their decision process on uh, the, the the trade-offs involved if, in fact – Damaging stuff like this, yeah, maybe not have been in the wild that whole time, but was in someone's hands that whole time, and I would imagine not going unused. Well, presumably somebody knows, but we don't. Uh, uh, I agree. Uh, Gus, anything you want to add to this? Well, I'd ask Julian whether or not he thinks what we're seeing in this case is an evolving approach to the VEP. If this was ad hoc decision-making, obviously we don't know, but... Uh, I appreciate his speculation um, and expect that it would be elucidating. Right. Well, I mean, so at this point, we are we are presuming, based on some irregularities in the patching process, that the government may have played a role in notifying Microsoft. They themselves have not uh, said so or acknowledged. Right. Neither NSA Microsoft as the, nor NSA right, has said as the source. So even the presumption that someone in the intelligence community finally made the call that um, it was necessary to, to, to warn the developer here um, is an inference. So it's, it's hard to say anything, certainly about the details of that process. I wish we did know um, somewhat more. All right. Well, um, so Ajit Pai and uh, the new uh, uh, Trump FCC has started the process, the, 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 the long and onerous process of rolling back everything that uh, Tom Willard did, apparently. Uh, and we're now uh, starting to see what the uh, outlines of the net neutrality policy is going to be. Uh, so, Stephanie, uh, um, what's left of net neutrality? Uh, well, the entire bailiwick of rules at this point. Um, what we have heard recently uh, coming out of some meetings with some ISPs that the chairman had over the last week or so is that he is looking for some voluntary commitments in their terms of service for the principles of transparency, um, no blocking, and then, no and throttling, dump all the, the, the and rules. in exchange, you dump all the rules and, quote, like return them to the FTC. Well, the to break that down, that means the FTC cannot regulate ISPs until they are no longer common carriers. Right. Under the FTC Act, they can't do it. Uh, and so. Which, which means an entire rulemaking process. That evidently, 
Pai may be thinking he does not need one. If you may recall, when the so uh, rules were reclassified, no, the, even forbearance doesn't get you into a mm-hmm. non-common carrier status. When the rules, when, when ISP services were reclassified in the 2015 Open Internet Order, they were done so via a declaratory ruling. Now they would have to be reclassified again out of common carrier status, also via declaratory ruling. But, but at it least could they don't be, have to go through two The argument of may be that he doesn't think he needs public notice, or he thinks if he publishes the draft rules three weeks before voting on them at an FCC open meeting, that uh, they that is sufficient public notice. If you may recall, also the ISPs challenged uh, the net neutrality rules on the reclassification in particular on the grounds that. Uh, reclassification wasn't part of the draft rules noticed in the NPRM right. um, leading to the 2015 order, although um, the uh, and that circuit was, that addressed a, that on the merits. Right. That was a shortcut that Wheeler took, essentially. The court didn't think so. Okay. Uh, the court, the D.C. Circuit addressed it on the merits, saying that there was particular notice, that it speculated whether or not, and asked people to comment on right. whether or not uh, reclassification was necessary to achieve it, the objectives that the FCC wanted to achieve at the time. So there's a lot of speculation right now about how Pi believes that, you know, on a technical matter, how to go about this. What is certain is that whatever route he, he takes will be challenged pretty uh, vociferously um, by the same people who um, supported so, the FCC's rules. So at the DC notice, Circuit. comment, new rule. At minimum, years of you need a um, notice and comment rulemaking and sufficient and adequate time for all the people. If you were, there were over a million comments in the net neutrality proceeding, the most ever for an agency now, rulemaking. I'm sure, and I'm sure they were all handcrafted individual emails. Uh, uh, well, uh, and not one of them referred to dingoes, right? <laughs> one wants to accept the realities of the digital age. Yes, no, exactly. well, uh, several referred to dingoes, but yeah, uh, we could, uh, right. I'll give you those. So, um, Stuart, if I can jump in, the most ahead, remarkable yes. thing about uh, those comments is I didn't realize there were 10,000 people in the country who understood what Title II was. <laughs> yeah, we uh, got orders of magnitude more uh, commenters uh, uh, in that proceeding. Um, I think if we look at what uh, Chairman Pai is doing, uh, the puzzle is why is he going to ISPs right now looking for these voluntary commitments? And I think that signals his endgame, which is a return to the FTC and the voluntary commitment approach and the uh, FTC backstop approach is what he and those of us who have been critics of the FCC's open Internet activities have been saying we should be doing for uh, uh, since the beginning. This should be at the FTC. So he's laying the ground for that return. The question is, of course, how do we get there? And uh, we could go through the notice and comment rulemaking approach. Uh, there are a number of things on the table and in the background here and I, I think the answer right now is that um, the chairman himself doesn't know or hasn't decided what the approach to take is. And there are a number of open questions out there. 
So one of the lingering things is uh, the pending end of uh, Commissioner Clyburn's term in June. That's and right. under FCC rules, she can continue on at the commission or she could step down at the commission uh, at the end of her term. She can continue on and stay on until her replacement has been appointed. But Gus, it is- indications are that she's not going to do that. Right. Uh, so I- indications are uh, that no one knows what she's going to do. Yeah. I, I agree that it is uh, uh, more likely that she's going to stick around. That said, it no, I think it's more likely she's going to step down. That's what we've heard lately. Really? It, yes. And, and does that does that leave the commission unable to? Function? That's correct. So yes. she, why so would she the not do that? FCC, unlike the FTC, has a quorum rule that requires at least three commissioners in order for them to effectively do anything. Um, so uh, the, uh, Chairman Pai could very likely try and get an NPRM up in that last commission meeting before uh, she would be likely to step down. Uh, another important thing that's still in the background here is the D.C. Circuit court challenge could still get appealed to the Supreme Court. And those of us uh, uh, working on uh, these issues and who challenged or worked on challenges to the 2015 order have been doing the calculus. And frankly, Justice Gorsuch joining the court, uh, we think, makes it marginally more likely that such an appeal is both possible and uh, would be successful. Uh, so these are two really big unknowns that may or may not force the chairman's hand and slow down or speed up the process. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I, uh, count me as a skeptic about Supreme Court review of this. Uh, it, um, it doesn't sound like something where you could persuade the court that it was, the decision below was so wrong that the court has to take it, notwithstanding the fact that there's never going to be a conflict. Uh, um, and if they think it's wrong, they can just say, well, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of people at the FCC now who think it's wrong too. Why don't we just wait and see what happens? So conserving their resources, I'm guessing no Supreme Court review. But uh, uh, it, it could easily be the case that uh, uh, Clyburn steps down just in order to cause six months uh, of greater pain, uh, and it could easily take the uh, new administration a long time to nominate people who could fill that uh, position and restore a uh, quorum. Exactly, and that's why uh, I think we the community um, that supports net neutrality is 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 uh, spending a lot of time trying to anticipate potential maneuvers to perhaps sidestep that process. But you know, look, if, they, if it goes to a, why not go to an NPR? I mean, you can always decide you can do something else uh, because you don't get the, results for uh, very immediately. Exactly, yeah. you can and you can give people uh, sixty days for uh, comment and uh, uh, raise a whole bunch of possibilities so that there's nothing you haven't flagged as a possible uh, outcome. Uh, uh, and then you know, by the time the comments come back and you've responded to them in the way the DC Circuit wants you to respond. To them, uh, you're another six months down the road, and by then they ought to have a, a working commission. Oh, very possible. We'll yeah. see how it plays out. All right. Uh, so I, uh, we talked about uh, medical device security uh, a couple of sessions ago, and uh, right uh, uh, on schedule, the FDA has taken a two-by-four to Abbott Labs uh, uh, over bad security in their defibrillators, uh, really, uh, you know, for such a short um 
decision. It is remarkably painful. Uh, what they basically say is there is a uh, an unlock code, what read backdoor, uh, that's built into uh, uh, these uh, defibrillators that can be used to access them. And this, of course, is what uh, MedSec had said. But apparently somebody else did that analysis a couple of years before MedSec did it last year. Uh, and um, Abbott Labs, or St. Jude's as it was then, uh, uh, said, oh, that's a feature, not a bug, uh, bragged about it in their security parts of their uh, their plan, and when it came time to evaluate risks, decided not to include it as a risk in their cybersecurity plan. So for like years now, uh, uh, this hole has been sitting there uh, that could be used to kill people, uh, and uh, uh, St. Jude and Abbott have just sat on it until the FDA finally... Uh, uh, slap them upside the head. So uh, we'll see more of that, but uh, uh, it's really it kind of raises questions about uh, uh, this industry and and how seriously they're taking security and the risks that go with it. Um, yeah, and it raises questions also about how regulators and potentially in the future courts will evaluate risk assessment. So one of the fascinating things here is potentially. Abbott actually evaluated this as a risk and dismissed it. And if they did that, then you're not so much saying, hey, you guys didn't do a risk analysis, but you're questioning how that risk analysis was done. And that's a fascinating question to do ex post uh, risk analysis like that. I think you might and be right. I, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it, it. The the FDA and doctors in general have responded to these hacking uh, uh, exploits with a kind of equanimity that uh, nobody else in any other industry would display on the grounds that well, we haven't seen it in the wild yet. As though you know, once you've demonstrated how easy it is, uh, uh, you aren't going to see it in the wild. And so they're saying, well, you know, it's a lot more convenient, and I get better uh, uh, patient compliance if I can monitor him. Uh, remotely, uh, and I want to be able to go in and fix things. Uh, so, you know, backdoors are always good if you're God, and 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 doctors have an inclination to confuse themselves with God. Uh, and so they've sort of said, well, this this makes God more potent, uh, and uh, we haven't seen anybody else try to take over our role. So, I guess it's not a problem. I, I think that might be the thinking that's going on here. Yeah, and the risk analysis for devices like these. I think are legitimately more complicated. So in the typical cybersecurity context, if there's a vulnerability, it's exploitable easily, readily across hundreds, thousands, millions of devices. I don't believe, and I could be wrong about uh, either the current state or future state of these devices, I don't believe that today a flaw like this could be exploitable easily on a mass scale. So this is a... Uh, Similar to uh, the, the Groth's famous quip about uh, zero days is like worrying about ninjas when you should be worrying about uh, your cardiovascular disease. This isn't a uh, threat that allows me or an attacker to shut off or activate 
a million people's defibrillators. It might allow me to target a single individual, and that's a very different threat calculus. And, uh, I, I think you're right, but, you know, look, I, 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 that's like saying, you know, the threat of any one spear phishing email compromising uh, uh, your uh, entire uh, uh, correspondence is so low, uh, Mr. Podesta, that, you know, you really don't have to worry about it. I, you know, if you are a target for certain kinds of folks, and that's a... It's a larger and larger group of people who might choose to target you. Uh, you do have to worry about this. I mean, everybody who uh, is likely to be of interest to a foreign government from uh, North Korea to Russia is at risk here, don't you think? Uh, true, though we don't let uh, senior government officials use ordinary uh, cell phones. We require them to use uh, or at least in some cases, we require them to uh, use more secure cell phones. Perhaps senior government officials should have uh, more secure pacemakers. Oh, my not God. So not only do I have to fill out that damn SF-86 full of all my past contacts with every foreigner on the planet, but I actually have to have surgery to remove my defibrillator. So I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. I'm, I'm interested in what Abbott's actual risk evaluation was here. Yeah. Did they actually think about these? If they did go through the uh, uh, efforts to meaningfully look at these risks, I think that they should uh, face lesser liability than if they just said, oh, no, we're not worried about that, and having a back door, and this is more convenient for us. Yeah. So I, I think that we do need to uh, think uh, somewhat seriously about how we evaluate these risks. And I'm, I'm always worried that agencies are just reflectively saying, hey, we want to have power here. We're going to take enforcement action here because the optics of what you did was bad. Okay, I, I, I take your point. Uh, I'm actually worried about the um, the fact that it's taken the FDA this long uh, and for the last several years apparently uh, uh, people have been installing these uh, devices with a known security flaw in them and nobody gets to, to, to know about it until years mm-hmm. after the fact. Uh, I, it seems to me informed consumers at least uh, you know you before it's installed in your chest you got a choice of Medtronics or Abbott or somebody else uh, and uh, even if your doctor isn't so worried about it, you might say, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm going to take my chances with a product that is not known to have a backdoor as opposed to a product that is known to have a backdoor. And, and uh, uh, the FDA seems to have taken its sweet time about letting us know that maybe there's an issue here. That's uh, certainly uh, an issue. I wonder whether or not this was triggered by their uh, post-market device guidance that they released just last year. Um, or whether or not they could have done something sooner. Obviously, I agree, they should have done something sooner. And I personally love the idea of allowing consumers and companies to compete on risk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you, you may feel different when you, once you have one in your chest. But, uh, uh, yes, it's, uh, uh, it, certainly a little more information probably makes sense, notwithstanding the FDA's inclination to believe that it will produce panic among patients. Um, uh, all right, I, uh, here's a case, a, a, a thing I love. I think we all loved it and, and for various reasons. Uh, Burger King came out with ads that said, and I'll try to be um, uh, uh, careful about this, uh, it said, 
Okay, Gruden. Um, what's a Whopper burger? I uh, and true to form, uh, anybody who had uh, Google uh, on their phone uh, uh, um, uh, called up if they were on their homepage, uh, uh, their phone started reading the first sentence of the Wikipedia page for uh, uh, for the Whopper burger. I mean, the, the real news here is that the Whopper burger has a Wikipedia page. Uh, apparently, it, it passed the uh, the notoriety. Test uh, and that produced you know, first. Google immediately tried to um, kill the uh, effectiveness of the thing by introducing some uh, probably uh, frequency-based uh, uh, test to make sure that uh, the words uh, did not trigger uh, uh, Google. Uh, and then more creatively, people who didn't like this started editing the Wikipedia page to say a Whopper burger contains cyanide and uh, a variety of other things that uh, Google could read back to you. Uh, um, but the legal take on this, uh, that was all just, uh, 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 you know, uh, a, a, a little bit of uh, pleasure. Uh, the legal take on this is, did Whopper, with its ad, violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Uh, and uh, uh, let me ask Julian and Gus whether you think that was a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. My my instinct is no. It should be disturbing that you shouldn't have to think about yes, it. Yes, but I think it is. It is in any way unclear. Well, it, are you accessing a computer that is attached to the Internet? So right. all your jurisdictional uh, uh, requirements are met. Uh, uh, you're accessing it without authority because you're not the one who's supposed to be talking to somebody else's phone. Now, you could be able to argue that... that Anybody within shouting distance of a phone has authority because uh, you've designed a system that enables right. that. And I think you know, I think there, there may be an analog here to some. Um, I think there have been cases under the the CFA essentially involving data that was not meant to be public, but was basically sitting unprotected and mm -hmm. wasn't accessed. And um, and I, my recollection is that you know, the upshot of those was well. Your intent does not matter yeah. if you've configured the systems so that anyone I, I, can get I, I, this. I think Arnheimer, right, uh, the um, who actually was convicted of going on and getting the email addresses of a bunch of uh, I think AT and T uh, um, customers, just because he figured out that uh, when you logged on, it was just a matter of uh, right. incrementing by by one the the logon uh, uh, requirements and started downloading a bunch of stuff. Maybe this happened to Apple as well, or maybe it was the iPhone at AT&T, uh, but he actually uh, got busted, even though he said, well, you know, it's sitting there on the right. internet. Any idiot could get to it if they just knew the trick. Right. Yeah, uh, so that, that case was uh, the AT&T iPhone uh, web portal. There have also been cases involving uh, sensitive data stored on anonymous FTP servers, where it was just, hey, it's convenient for my company to put it here. And someone found it and uh, uh, downloaded it, and the CFAA has been uh, used. Yeah. There's a really interesting twist on this. Um, so the, the key trigger for the CFAA is that you need to exceed authorized access. And uh, Julian is right. There is no intent requirement. So the question is, what is authorized access here? And a lot of these devices have gotten in trouble with a wiretap act grounds that they're in this always listening, recording things that they hear, sending them back to some home computer, some central computer for processing. 
there's an argument, and I think this echoes what Julian was saying, that if these devices are programmed to always be listening, always recording, always responding, they're not exceeding, Burger King isn't exceeding authorized access because that's how they're programmed, and this is the flip side of the Wiretap Act uh, concerns that uh, some of these companies have faced. Uh, so I think that's probably the best defense uh, that uh, uh, Burger King might have here. It's also worth noting uh, one of the core things that the CFAA uh, is meant to protect against is companies, or the way that some of the cases have played out is when companies need to incur expenses in response to attacks, uh, those can be cognizable uh, damages under the CFAA. And Google clearly spent money re-engineering their systems in response to this ad. And also, apparently, Burger King then spent money re-engineering their ad so that this would continue working again. So you have a cat and mouse uh, game going on. Yeah, so I, I, they have to get to 5000 bucks to have a uh, uh, private right of action, if I remember right, so, or at least to have a felony. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's not inconceivable that uh, if Google had a tame prosecutor uh, in its pocket, they could, uh, uh, they could get uh, Burger King prosecuted for this, which I, I think is not a, 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 a prospect that should make people comfortable with the CFAA. This was, you know, this authorized language was designed to future-proof this, but uh, uh, it's getting pretty long in the tooth here. And the idea that there ought to be an exception for things that are uh, openly and notoriously available to uh, uh, to the public uh, probably does make sense. All right, uh, and um, just any other topics? Uh, um, I saw that uh, 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 Rule 41 has been used to go after the Kelohos, uh bot, and uh, uh, this is the uh, uh, we were all told at the end of the year that uh, the world would end if the uh, um, a rule change was adopted to allow uh, warrants to be issued in Virginia that covered the country. Uh, uh, this is such a warrant uh, designed to give access to the uh, 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 the various, all the infected uh, machines to let them know that they should be talking to somebody else. Uh, a, and doesn't look as though the, uh, the world ended when the government used this. Uh, uh, and I suspect... Um, they did save a lot of time, assuming they needed a warrant here, which is open to some question. Uh, it does make sense for them to have used this rather than gone to every uh, judicial district in the country to uh, try to attack this bot. Any thoughts, Gus? Oh, I'm just glad that the world did, and I'm also not at all surprised. Yeah. All right. Uh, and um, I... The one other thing that we've learned uh, uh, from the uh, the uh, dump uh, the, from uh, shadow brokers is that uh, NSA apparently was monitoring SWIFT transactions in the Middle East, uh, uh, and uh, you know I, I done, that it isn't likely to be surprising to most people that uh, uh, given the attention that the U.S. has paid to terrorist financing that they would want to get into the system uh, and uh, the 
security and privacy requirements that the Europeans insisted on trying to hide certain transactions from the United States uh, when they had swift over a barrel, kind of forced the government to to use intelligence uh, capabilities here. But I can't believe that this is a comfortable thing either for NSA or for SWIFT to have in the public record. Yeah, one of the most concerning things for me isn't about this revelation, but it's, uh, so I, I'll start by saying that SWIFT attacks over the last couple of years are some of the scariest things um, I think that I see in this space because we're talking about potentially so much money and securing these systems is really important. And I am worried, concerned, curious how much influence uh, the U.S. government has tried to exert or other governments have tried to exert over these financial transaction protocols in order to obtain or maintain this level of access. Um, This is, I think, a uh, very interesting and informative and potentially uh, concerning development. Yeah, you know, I'm not a big guy on norms for cyber attacks, but uh, because I think they'll mostly end up being norms for the U.S. government and not for anybody else. Uh, But when it comes to attacking financial systems, uh, despite a lot of temptation, the U.S. government has never done more than collect intelligence, as far as I can see. Uh, you know, I'm sure we could have zeroed out uh, Vladimir Putin's Swiss bank accounts if we really worked at it. Uh, uh, but once you start zeroing out accounts, um, uh, it's Katie bar the door. Uh, and the Treasury Department has been strong enough to say, uh, you know, over our dead bodies, will you do that? So if that's the case, you know, maybe we should try to get an enforceable norm against uh, interfering with uh, uh, transactions as opposed to gathering intelligence on them. That's a tricky line to draw, um, but it would have put the North Korean attack of the effort to steal a billion dollars on the wrong side of that line. And since it's only the North Koreans and occasionally, you know, more lighthearted way, the Iranians who've done that, uh, I think maybe we could get agreement. Well, the North Koreans being on the wrong side of international norm would certainly give them pause. No, no. I, I would, well, you know, I, I do think... If if you could make it enforceable so that it was enforceable by Chinese banks as well and Russian banks, then it's worth doing. No, it's not worth doing just to announce that uh, uh, there's a violation of international law in Pyongyang. Uh, um, but uh, if you could find a way to actually get the finance ministers of Russia and China, who almost certainly are exactly where our treasury is to say yeah absolutely the one thing it's like it's like being a uh, a slave trader or a pirate uh, all every man's hand should be turned against you if you attack our uh, uh our, our uh financial system you might be able to get them worth a try if uh, we're willing to accept the same uh, the yeah same yeah and, and i think we are because I, I think we've already we've looked into that opportunity and said nah thanks but no thanks all right. Uh, so I, I should ask you guys, I, I do appreciate you uh, jumping on the call. Uh, Gus, uh, Julian, have you got any things coming up that our listeners ought to know about? Uh, papers coming out, speeches, uh, et cetera? Uh, so I'll uh, start. Um, I have a paper that I'm certain everyone is going to agree with and will make me lots of friends. Uh, coming out on encryption regulation in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology and uh, a piece on the relationship between 
cyber insurance and strict liability in the cyber domain coming out in the Connecticut Law Review. Um, I, so one of those is going to make me a lot more friends than the other, I'm sure. So I, I'm glad you're doing I hope I hope what you're doing is uh, a kind of catalog of things that governments that wanted to regulate encryption could do without uh, bringing uh, uh, the entire House of Security down on their heads. Because uh, it strikes me there's probably probably five different ways of approaching this that that uh, governments could choose, and the governments in Europe probably will choose from. Uh, uh, so, is that is, is, is you're, are you saying, yeah, it's not unthinkable? Uh, yeah. So, the, the basic argument of the paper is that there is a fertile middle ground um, that has not been explored by either side. That is not about backdoors. It's not about breaking encryption. Um, that both sides need to start seriously engaging with one another uh, to explore. Okay, cool. Well, I, I, we, sh- we should talk about that uh, when you get it out because um, it's very clear. I just saw that uh, uh, the leading centrist candidate uh, for the French presidency and the guy who's favored like uh, uh, five to one uh, is uh, it has, has announced that his terrorism program consists of beating the crap out of Google and Facebook and Apple uh, uh, to get them to cooperate more on the encryption issue. Um, so uh, I think it's coming to Europe. It'll be slow and painful and anti-American as usual, but uh, um, I'm guessing we're going to see something there. Julian, uh, you can comment on that or you can tell us what else uh, you've got coming out. I've got a. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm uh, planning on writing something on uh, on the same issue, although uh, that's that's in in early stages. So mm-hmm. uh, stay tuned to Cato.org, and uh, uh, you'll you'll catch my uh, uh, latest feats as they are uh, manifest. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks to Julian. Thanks to Stephanie Royce. Thanks to uh, Gus Hurwitz. Uh, uh, as always, the, Step- the, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send us your questions, suggestions for interviews, etc. Uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if we pick one of your uh, suggested speakers, uh, we will send you, as well as them, uh, one of our highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mugs, uh, uh, one of which is already uh, in the on-deck circle for Julian Sanchez to take away. So, uh, Julian, congratulations. Uh, uh, and uh, coming up, uh, other speakers, we've got Michael Schmidt uh, from uh, 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 more universities than I can count, but whose principal uh, uh, claim to fame on the podcast is that uh, he was a prime mover in uh, Talon 2.0, which is uh, an effort uh, which I suspect is misguided, but there it is uh, to bring uh, uh, the law of war to cyber attacks. Uh, uh, and Tim Moore, who uh, is going to be exploring, he's from uh, the Carnegie Endowment uh, for International Peace, uh, uh, and he's written an interesting paper uh, that kind of ties into what I was suggesting, that maybe there is room for an enforceable norm against um, cyber attacks on the financial system. We'll be talking to him uh, in, the, in the upcoming weeks. So we hope that all of you will join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.